Hi, this is Professor Corey Olson, and welcome to the second lecture in my eight-part series on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. This lecture is titled The Ridiculous and the Sublime, and it will focus on Chapter 2 of The Hobbit, Roast Mutton, and Chapter 3, A Short Rest. These are on pages 27 to 51 of the Houghton Mifflin Edition. When Tolkien is introducing Bilbo at the beginning of chapter 1, he describes the book as a story of how a Baggins had an adventure, and adds he may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. As we go through The Hobbit, I want to follow the prompt that Tolkien gives us in this sentence to look out for what Bilbo gains, how he changes and develops through his adventures, and, Tolkien implies, benefits from them. In my first lecture, I spent a fair amount of time looking at how Tolkien sets Bilbo's character up and makes him a model for the reader. I want to start this lecture by examining how Tolkien follows this up in the first stage of Bilbo's adventure. How does Tolkien handle the soft, sheltered Bilbo's actual adjustment to the adventuring life? Chapter 2 starts with Bilbo waking to find the dwarves and Gandalf apparently gone, leaving only massive piles of dirty dishes behind. This seems at first quite anticlimactic. The night before, Bilbo had gone through a series of internal upheavals. His imagination and emotions were stirred by the dwarf's song. He was reduced to fits of screaming terror by the prospect of the journey, and then inspired by anger and offended dignity at being insulted and belittled by the dwarves, he boldly made the rather unlikely resolution to accompany the dwarves on their adventure. Even though he clearly retains Baggins' reservations at the end of the chapter, we are certainly led to believe that the Took side had indeed won. When he wakes up in chapter 2, the Tookish determination of the night before seems to have almost completely evaporated. In fact, Tolkien says that he rather hoped that it had all been a bad dream. He does show some residual Tookishness, but it's extremely mild compared to his bold statements of the previous night. It's merely wistful and momentary. Tolkien only says that, in a way, he could not help feeling just a trifle disappointed that the dwarves had apparently decided to go on without him, and the feeling surprises Bilbo. He has already, it seems, gone back to being something like 90% Baggins. In fact, Tolkien even says that once he's finished doing the dishes, Bilbo begins to forget about the night before. He is settling very nicely back into an almost purely Bagginsish existence. After all, what says comfort and ease more perfectly than a nice little second breakfast in the dining room by the open window? Having re-established peace, order, and predictability in his hobbit hole, Bilbo finds the adventure bursting in on him a second time. Gandalf's sudden appearance might not be quite as unexpected as the party of the previous day, but its impact is even more abrupt and disturbing. Within five minutes of Gandalf's arrival, Bilbo is dashing out the door and leaving his hole behind, possibly forever, having made no preparations for the journey at all. Bilbo is swept off onto his adventure almost against his will, nearly without making a conscious decision to set out at all. Tolkien remarks that to the end of his days, Bilbo could never remember how he found himself leaving, pelting off down the lane as fast as his furry feet could carry him. Now, I want to pause in the examination of Bilbo to observe the rather amusing tone of the note that the dwarves leave for him on his mantelpiece. The note is extravagantly formal and businesslike, with its reference to total profits and traveling expenses and funeral expenses to be defrayed by us or our representatives. Actually, it's completely over the top. They claim that the terms of the contract are cash on delivery, which sounds very formal and proper, but in fact makes no sense. I mean, delivery of what? Bilbo is supposed to deliver something? What, the treasure? That seems to be asking a little much. 
In fact, I take the formality of the language in the note to be a bit of a joke at Bilbo's expense. Remember that Thorin thought their business perfectly well explained by their song and music. It was Bilbo who demanded, in his business manner, to have everything made completely plain and clear. In the note, the dwarves seem to be picking up on Bilbo's insistence on this business-like formality, and also teasing him for freaking out at the possibility of death in the course of their adventure. They offer to pay for funeral expenses if occasion arises and the matter is not otherwise arranged for. The alternative funeral arrangements to which they allude are presumably his body being lost over a cliff, or washed down a river, or consumed by wild beasts, or in the last resort eaten by the dragon. Their reference to awaiting his respected person seems openly sarcastic. The dwarves clearly don't respect Bilbo at all yet. But the use of the word is interesting in light of the ways in which respectability was so integral a part of the Baggins family reputation in Chapter 1. It's clear that the respect of Bilbo's neighbors and the respect of the dwarves is mutually exclusive. To some extent, the way the dwarves look down on the Hobbit is unfair to Bilbo. But don't forget that their feelings of distrust and skepticism are at least to some extent reciprocated by Bilbo. He sets out without preparing himself for the adventurous life. He hasn't packed at all. He has to borrow a cloak and hood from Dwalin, and they're too big for him. This image of Bilbo riding along in his ill-fitting dwarfhood is the perfect representation of Bilbo's state as he sets off on the adventure. On the one hand, the outfit is outlandish and not at all respectable or Baggins-ish. Tolkien emphasizes this by reminding us of Bilbo's ultra-respectable lineage, remarking, What his father Bungo would have thought of him, I daren't think. On the other hand, he is not at all at home in this adventurous outfit, and he looks rather comic. The adventure literally does not fit him yet, and what's more, he doesn't really want it to. Tolkien mentions that his only comfort was that he couldn't be mistaken for a dwarf as he had no beard. He doesn't want to fit in. As we saw in Chapter 1, Bilbo is a character who is always pulled in two directions at once by his Baggins and Took sides. But Tolkien does not just describe him as if he has multiple personalities or something. The way the two sides of Bilbo interact and coexist are very complex. He's not just a miniature Jekyll and Hyde. It will be important to remember when we get to the end of the story and look back on the full scope of Bilbo's character development that at the beginning of his journey, Bilbo is in a sort of no-man's land. He is rapidly losing the respect of his neighbors, but he has not yet gained the respect of the dwarves. He has been removed from his quiet, comfortable life, but he has still not adapted to the new adventurous life. By giving us his story through the perspective of a character who sits on the margin of these two worlds, Tolkien is able to present the story from two different angles at once. We're able to share in the wonder and fascination that Bilbo feels at times as new and unimagined scenes open before him, but we will never be asked simply to glorify the adventure blindly. We will never lose touch with the very down-to-earth perspective on these events that Bilbo's Baggins side gives him. Bilbo will develop as an adventurer, but he will always remain a permanent anomaly. He will become better adapted, and will forget that his hood doesn't fit him, but there will always be a part of him that doesn't fit into his heroic story. After Bilbo's breathless and rather unpromising beginning to his adventure, Tolkien breaks him in very gradually. It starts off as a pleasant ride through beautiful country, just the kind of trip that Bilbo enjoys. Gandalf even brings him his pipe and some pocket handkerchiefs. They are traveling through a wide, respectable country inhabited by decent folk. They then pass into lands where people spoke strangely, and then into the lone lands, where there were no people left, no inns, and the roads grew steadily worse. When finally they begin to approach Rivendell, Gandalf announces that they are come to the very edge of the wild. 
the world is far wider and wilder than Bilbo had imagined, so that when he sees his first mountain, the nearest of the Misty Mountains, he imagines that it must be the Lonely Mountain, the end point of their journey. When he's told that they are in fact still less than halfway there, and that the real dangers of the journey still lie in front of them, Bilbo feels more tired than he ever remembered feeling before. His response is to retreat in his mind back to Bag End, thinking of his comfortable chair before the fire in his favorite sitting-room in his hobbit hole, and of the kettle singing. This is, of course, a repeated refrain throughout the book, as Tolkien reminds us by adding the tagline, Not for the last time. He may be on the road to becoming a seasoned adventurer, journeying knowingly from safety into increasing danger and unpredictability, but wherever he goes, Bilbo carries the memory of Bag End with him. The specific image of the chair, the fire, and the kettle that he keeps conjuring up speaks of comfort, security, and pleasure, and he frequently returns to it when he is feeling overwhelmed, miserable, or afraid. It's not danger or a sense of awe at the magnitude and terror of the wild that prompts Bilbo to cast his mind longingly back to his hobbit hole the first time, however. The first hardship he encounters is simply wretched discomfort. They are camping in the Lone Lands, and everything goes wrong. They can't light the fire, a pony carrying the food bolts into the river, and they have little food left for supper and less for breakfast. Tolkien completes the picture of misery by describing the annoying drip, drip of rainwater on them under the trees. It is this situation that first brings his kettle and his hearth to mind, and this helps us to see the full weight of that particular image. The Baggins in Bilbo longs not just for safety and familiarity, but for coziness and comfort. Thinking of this scene, I'd like to make a note in passing about the dwarves. From the beginning, they've been associated with adventure and tookishness. Their arrival at Bag End is the beginning of adventures in Bilbo's world. Yet we should notice that they themselves are not hardened, experienced adventurers. They might scoff at Bilbo, comparing him to a grocer, and suggesting somewhat archly that a lack of pocket handkerchiefs will be the least of Bilbo's worries. But they're not completely acclimated to the adventurous life either. They grumble for regular meals, just like Bilbo. They seem to have gone on this desperate, dangerous journey entirely unarmed, which was rather remarkably short-sighted. I mean, notice that even Thorin is reduced to fighting the trolls with sticks that he picks up off the ground. Also, they show evidence of being remarkably naive. Nothing shows this more clearly than their reaction to seeing the trolls fire in the distance. When they decide to investigate, or rather send Bilbo to investigate, they dismiss any possible danger by saying anything was better than little supper, less breakfast, and wet clothes all the night. Uh, really? Anything at all? Of course they won't feel this way once they're tied up in sacks and about to be cooked, but it really does show the extent to which the dwarves themselves are little more accustomed than Bilbo to adventures. One final note on Bilbo's transition to the adventurous life. At the end of the last lecture, I noted that the first chapter makes a big deal of Bilbo's identification as a burglar. Gandalf hotly informs the dwarves that if I say he is a burglar, a burglar he is, or will be when the time comes. In chapter 2, the dwarves seem to have accepted Gandalf's word on this. At any rate, they address him in the note they leave him as Burglar Bilbo. Now there's a chance, based on the tone of the note which I've discussed earlier, that they're being at least marginally sarcastic in applying this label. But their discussion in the woods about the distant fire shows that their acceptance is at least somewhat genuine. When the dwarves see the fire through the trees in the dark, they're all looking around for Gandalf. When he's not to be found, they turn to Bilbo, remarking, After all, we have got a burglar with us. Funny though it seems, Bilbo, as the burglar, is the only professional adventurer left in Gandalf's absence. 
Bilbo accepts the title and role of burglar here for the first time in actual practice. Tolkien, however, rather delightfully registers a doubt, for when the dwarves finally say, Now it is the burglar's turn, Tolkien feels obliged to clarify, meaning Bilbo, as if the readers might possibly be confused. This brings us to what Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring remembers rather nostalgically as Bilbo's first successful adventure, his encounter with the trolls. Now that's a pretty generous description of the event. Bilbo does survive, so I guess that counts as a win, but he doesn't really do or accomplish anything positive. But I'm not really saying it's exactly a failure, either. In Bag End, Bilbo may look more like a grocer than a burglar, but he does, in fact, have the relevant skill set to be a good burglar. He can move so quietly that not even a weasel would have stirred a whisker at it. And he does successfully pick William the Troll's pocket, or he would have done had the purse not rather unaccountably squealed in protest. Can I just say, as an aside, that the talking purse is possibly the most random moment in the entire book. Trolls' purses are the mischief, Tolkien tells us. I I can see how Bilbo, unused to the world of magical and fantastical things, doesn't realize that the purse is magical and can, apparently, talk. I'm sure you or I would have made the same mistake, but it's still really weird. Anyway, what is most important here is Bilbo's conscious choice to live up to the title that Gandalf gave him. Bilbo's thought process shows his struggle as he tries to act the unaccustomed role of professional burglar. On the one hand, he rejects the simplest and most prudent choice, to scamper right back to the dwarves and tell them that the fire belongs to enormous and irritable trolls. He says that somehow he could not go straight back to Thorin and company empty-handed. But this is not because he's worried that they'll think him a coward. Remember that his whole mission was just to see if everything was perfectly safe and canny. Far from thinking more of him for his burgling attempt, the dwarves are actively annoyed when they find out about it. Bomber calls it, in a wonderfully alliterative phrase, a silly time to go practicing pinching and pocket-picking. What motivates him is a desire to live up to Gandalf's recommendation. It is, in a phrase he uses as he thinks over his options, his professional pride as a burglar. On the other hand, however, he still chooses among the options based on which one seems least difficult. He may be trying to become a real burglar. He may be getting bolder, but he is not yet too bold. When Bilbo slips his hand into Bill's pocket, his first burglarious act, what a wonderful word that is, Bilbo says to himself, this is a beginning. And it is. It may not be a stupendous success, but it is the official beginning of Bilbo's career. I want to turn now, as I promised in the last lecture I would, to a consideration of the trolls themselves. The trolls are, first and foremost, ridiculous and comical figures, clearly designed to get laughs. They have working-class names and accents, and they drink beer out of jugs. They roll around on the ground fighting like schoolboys and whacking each other with sticks. They throw silly insults at each other, such as lout and booby, which Tolkien, in one of my favorite phrases in the whole book, calls perfectly true and applicable names. The trolls are genuinely funny characters. We're not allowed to overlook the fact that the trolls are quite seriously dangerous, however. The brief description that we get of the nature of trolls is in its way quite chilling. They are made of the stuff of the mountains, and they are tied in the essence of their beings to the dark, so that the light of the sun destroys them. They are living stone, animated by darkness, enormously strong and delighting in murder. They may be funny, but they're no joke. Even the elves of Rivendell are scared of them and avoid the region for fear of them. I mentioned in my previous lecture Tolkien's habit of treating solemn or even terrifying subjects with a comical, light-hearted touch. 
Nowhere in The Hobbit is that strategy more perfectly illustrated than in his treatment of the trolls. We find out about the terrible aspects of their nature and the fear they have inspired in the region only at the very end of the encounter, after Gandalf arrives and the trolls are safely petrified. Tolkien introduces the trolls carefully, setting the scene very deliberately. When Bilbo looks into the clearing, Tolkien does not just say that he sees three trolls. If he did, we might immediately conjure some terrifying image in our heads. Tolkien starts by calling them merely three very large persons, and the initial scene he describes is quite homey and even comforting. There is a large fire of beech logs, mutton being toasted on long spits of wood, a barrel of good drink at hand, and a fine toothsome smell. But he undermines this by saying that the large persons are obviously trolls. Even the sheltered Bilbo can tell this right away. He presents a quiet and comfortable scene, and then asks us to imagine the trolls in that context. His handling of their conversation is masterful. The content of the trolls' conversation, taken alone, is horrifying. The trolls are longing for the taste of human flesh, and one reveals casually that they have recently murdered and eaten enough people to fill a village and a half. This may be exaggeration, but there's no reason to think it improbable. Tolkien downplays these harrowing details by drawing our attention not to what the trolls say, but to how they say it. The trolls are readily identifiable to Bilbo, we're told, not because of their man-eating tendencies, but because of the impoliteness of their manner of speech, which is not drawing-room fashion at all, at all. Right after William makes the comment about the village and a half, he takes a bite of mutton and wiped his lips on his sleeve. And Tolkien injects the comment, I'm afraid trolls do behave like that. The funny thing is that it's unclear which troll behavior Tolkien is apologizing for, the massacring of whole towns full of people, or wiping his mouth on his sleeve. Tolkien manages to register their savagery in his reader's mind, while still diffusing it by lumping it in with their mere impoliteness and bad manners. It is also no coincidence that the moments in this encounter that could be the most horrifying are also some of the most amusing. I'm thinking here of the many times when the trolls are talking about eating Bilbo and the dwarves. Bilbo getting caught and nearly eaten would be terrifying if not for the troll's references to cookery. A huge reeking troll seizing his fallen opponent in a clutching claw and seeking to rip out his still-living victim's throat with his teeth, as Pippin encounters in The Return of the King, is a terror. A troll who sizes up a captive hobbit and speculates on how much meat will be left for cooking after he has been skinned and boned, as if he were pricing goods in a market, is much, much less scary. No matter how many times I have read this book, I cannot help but laugh every time I hear Bert suggesting that if they could catch a few more, they might make a pie. Bilbo himself, threatened with gruesome death, picks up on the spirit of the encounter, stammering, I am a good cook myself, and cook better than I cook, if you see what I mean. I'll cook beautifully for you, a perfectly beautiful breakfast for you, if only you won't have me for supper. Even while he's being suspended by his own hair, the intended victim is in on the joke here. The capture of the dwarves works very similarly. There are no killings. No one even gets hurt. The dwarves are just popped into sacks and then made to listen on while the trolls debate over exactly how the dwarves should be prepared for eating. The idea of trolls pausing to have this discussion is highly comical. One rarely hears of trolls cooking their food at all, much less mincing it beforehand. The idea of trolls getting so absorbed in a culinary debate that they forget about the one thing they must fear above all others, the dawn, is simply ridiculous. Tolkien takes the terror out of the troll encounter by making it comical, but we should notice that even through the comical touches, he manages to make a serious point. The trolls are not conquered, they are not overcome. Gandalf tricks them, but he does not defeat them. 
the trolls are the victims of their own hunger and their own quarrelsomeness. They die because they could not work together, and because their hunger and their hatred of the dwarves make them forget everything else. In short, they are undone by their own evil tendencies. That which makes them evil leads to their downfall. This is a general principle in Tolkien's thinking. We will find it true again and again in Tolkien's works. One last point about chapter 2, and then I'll move on to chapter 3. Roast Mutton is a very odd title for this chapter. In fact, I'd go so far as to call it the strangest chapter title in the whole book. Some of the chapter titles are simply descriptive, such as An Unexpected Party or A Short Rest. Some are more abstract, but still point to the major events of the chapter, such as Riddles in the Dark or Fire and Water. Some are metaphorical, such as Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire or The Clouds Burst. But why on earth call this chapter Roast Mutton? Surely the mutton itself plays the smallest possible role in the events of the chapter? Notice, though, how Tolkien has set up his entire approach to depicting the trolls in the title of the chapter. Food is, in fact, the main focus of the chapter. By referring in the title to the mutton on the trolls' spits, Tolkien fixes our attention on the trolls getting and preparing food. They are eating mutton and longing for human flesh, but quite likely to try roasted dwarf. He could have called the chapter Of Roasted Dwarf and Hobbit Pie, but that would not have struck quite the same note. In the title, as in the chapter, the danger is present, but submerged. As we move from the slapstick trolls to the noble elves of Rivendell, we might expect to be moving from the ridiculous to the sublime. The funny thing is that this does not at all appear to be the case. When we meet elves for the first time, they burst out in a remarkably silly and undignified song, full of lyrics like tra la la lolly and ha-ha. Immediately afterwards, Tolkien remarks, probably with some accuracy, and pretty fair nonsense, I dare say you think it. Very soon, the elves launch into another song as ridiculous as the one I have written down in full. There is nothing dignified about the elves. They delight in teasing the dwarves for their beards, and Bilbo for his pudginess. When they make their comment about Bilbo not fitting through keyholes, Gandalf finally has to shush them, and even rebuke them gently, saying, Hush, hush, good people. Valleys have ears, and some elves have over-merry tongues. Even Bilbo's first reaction to his arrival in the Valley of Rivendell sounds silly and rather disrespectful. Hmm, he says, it smells like elves. All in all, the elves at first glance appear almost as ridiculous as the trolls did, though in a different way. We mustn't be too dismissive, though. Their initial interactions with the dwarves' party may tempt us to see them as rather brainless, but I think that would be a bit rash. Let's look a little more closely at their song. I'll admit, by the way, that I have a personal weakness for the songs in Tolkien's books. They're not always great poetry, nor always intended to be, but they are always interesting, and usually provide an interesting angle on the story in which they take place. Tolkien wasn't a great poet, but he was a thoughtful one. Anyway, the elves' song is essentially made up of three constituent parts, simple questions, even simpler statements of fact, and nonsense syllables. A first, and possibly even a second reading of this song, seems only to confirm the elves' fundamental silliness. In the first stanza, for instance, they start by asking, What are you doing, and where are you going? Hardly penetrating questions. Then they observe that their ponies need shoeing. Now, this is quite likely true, but what's the point? Why bring this up? Are they mocking the travelers for being road-worn? What's up with that? But then they pass on to the crashingly obvious and apparently inconsequential observation that the river is flowing. Well, uh, thanks for the tip. I bet Bilbo and the dwarves spotted that for themselves, actually. 
They end the stanza with O Tralala Lally, here down in the valley. Now, it's not clear what exactly is happening down in the valley. Is this a completion of the previous statement that the river is flowing down in the valley? Or are they actually suggesting that Tralala Lally is in some sense something that's going on in the valley? Why are they singing this song? What is the point? Where even the enjoyment? The final stanza is particularly interesting in light of the apparent silliness of the rest of the song. The elves sing, To fly would be folly, to stay would be jolly, and listen and hark till the end of the dark to our tune. Ha ha! Now, the dwarves and Bilbo have just finished a tiring journey through dangerous country. They've nearly been killed by trolls, and they lost most of their food days ago. The elves who meet them upon their arrival, instead of ushering them inside to eat and rest, suggest that they might be happier staying outside in the trees with them, listening to their song until dawn. Keep in mind that earlier in this same stanza, they pointed out that the daylight is only just then dying, so they're inviting the dwarves and Bilbo to a full eight-hour-long Trillilalali fest. This is not merely a poetic gesture. The elves repeat the invitation to stay and sing with them after the song is over. What the heck is going on here? One might be tempted to ask if the elves are really quite sane. Bilbo's response to the elves gives us two interesting cues, though, that invite us to rethink our assessment of the elves' silliness. The first comes right after the elves finish their song. Tolkien tells us that Bilbo loved elves, though he seldom met them, but he was a little frightened of them, too. The second is Bilbo's response to the elves' crazy invitation to stay and sing in the trees instead of going inside to eat and sleep. Tolkien notes that tired as he was, Bilbo would have liked to stay a while. Elvish singing is not a thing to miss, in June, under the stars, not if you care for such things. Bilbo's temptation to stay and listen to them sing, and his slight fear of the elves, invite us to think about them a little bit more carefully. The song may be ridiculous nonsense, but there seems to be a bit more to it than we might at first think. In order to understand what else there is to it, we need to look at it in the context of how the elves are depicted elsewhere in the chapter. The elves are constantly singing. They sing when the dwarves arrive. They sing as the dwarves cross the river. They sing when it's time for the adventurers to leave. Also, they do a very great deal of laughing. They joke with the dwarves and tease them in Bilbo. They and their songs are always referred to as merry or jolly, and their first song is described as a burst of song-like laughter. The elves simply take delight in everything, and their continual singing is an expression of that delight. Their song, seen from this angle, is not mere random silliness. The nonsense words are laughter turned into song. The questions reflect amused curiosity and contain an implicit invitation to join in the fun. The often unconnected and obvious statements of fact are, in my mind, the most characteristic and interesting moments of all. In these moments, the elves digress into a pure and free-floating enjoyment of everything around them. They are delighted by everything, by the flowing of the river, by the smell of the wood fire, by the baking of oat cakes, that's what bannocks are, by the way, by the sunset, and even by the dwarves' own ponies. There is a lack of restraint in the pleasure that they take in the world around them that might understandably make us think them foolish. But that, as Tolkien insists, would be a very foolish thing to think. This is why Bilbo, of all people, almost chooses listening to their song over eating and sleeping, even when he's ravenous and exhausted. There is a joy in the singing of the elves that transcends even these staple pleasures of the hobbit life. There is also clearly a great strength in the elves, a strength that does not get a lot of emphasis in the chapter, but is clearly present. The elves are tied to high and ancient things, like the lost and wondrous city of Gondolin and the terrible elf and goblin wars. 
Elrond, master of Rivendell, is at the center, both of their connections to ancient history and of their strength. He is compared to the greatest extremes of beauty, wisdom, physical strength, honor, and kindness. He is described as the opponent of even such mighty creatures as dragons, and his power over evil creatures is described as nearly absolute. Evil things did not come into that valley. Period. In this light, it's not so hard to see how Bilbo would be a little afraid of the elves. Bilbo's stay at Rivendell plays an interesting role in his adventure as a whole, a role beyond offering him the short rest alluded to in the chapter title. In The Elves in Their House, Bilbo discovers, for the first time, satisfaction for both parts of his own divided nature. Rivendell is a place where Bagginses and Tooks can both be happy and fulfilled. It's associated with comfort and ease, like Bag End, but to an even greater degree. It is the perfect house for food and sleep and sitting and thinking. But it is also the perfect house for storytelling and singing, and the adventurous life of the old great stories and legends still lives on there in Elrond and his people. Bilbo has never known a world in which both the Baggins and the Took in him can be content. At Bag End, his Took side was dormant. On the journey, his Baggin side protests. Rivendell, however, is perfect. In Rivendell, Bilbo has a glimpse of what an actual reconciliation between his two natures would look like, of life in a world that would fulfill both of his instincts and impulses. Tolkien even goes so far as to say that Bilbo would gladly have stopped there forever and ever, even supposing a wish would have taken him right back to his hobbit hole without trouble. Bilbo recognizes that even his hobbit hole, that image of security and coziness that he clings to when he's tired or distressed, cannot compete with the deeper and richer comfort and satisfaction to be found with the elves in Rivendell. It's hardly surprising that in the Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo will choose to retire here. When it's time for Bilbo to leave, he is not only rested, he is invigorated. His heart is ready for more adventure. There's just one more theme I want to look at, and then I'll call it a day. It's an important theme, and it will get more and more important as the book goes along, but it really has its beginning here in chapters 2 and 3. I'm referring to the remarkable luck, the uncanny good fortune of Bilbo and his companions. After the trolls are petrified, Bilbo is able to let his companions into the trolls' lair by use of a key he found that had very luckily fallen out of William's pocket while he was fighting. In that lair, they find two swords, and a knife, of tremendous antiquity. Later, we learn that Gandalf's sword, Glamdring, not only comes from the ancient elven city of Gondolin, which was conquered thousands of years before and a thousand miles away, but it had once been the sword of the king of Gondolin himself. This is rather like breaking into a modern thief's hideout and finding an artifact that has survived from ancient Egypt, and which later turns out to have been the personal property of Ramses the Great. Somehow, incredibly, this sword of almost unique antiquity and power and its mate, Orchrist, have found their way into the hands of the three humble trolls and thence into the possession of Gandalf and Thorin. You might think that this is merely Tolkien stretching a bit, intervening to give his main characters really awesome weapons. But Thorin himself brings up the question of where the trolls got them, drawing our attention to how unlikely it was that the dwarves and their friends should have just happened to come across these particular weapons. Just in case we don't really think too much about this coincidence, however, Tolkien reasserts the point through the astonishing coincidence of the moon letters. We are told that these runes, the runes that give the instructions for how to get in the secret side door, are only visible by the crescent moon, and not just any crescent moon, but a crescent moon on Midsummer's Eve. These instructions would only even be legible, once every few decades at most, in other words, and they just happened to choose this day to show the map to Elrond. Had they shown it to him the day before, had it even been cloudy that night, they'd never even have seen them. 
Again, this is not an improbability that Tolkien is hoping we won't notice and chuckle at. He draws our attention to it, observing that there would not be another chance to read these runes until goodness knows when. Furthermore, the instructions themselves require yet another unusual celestial phenomenon to align itself for them, Durin's Day. Add in the business about the thrush knocking, and you have a series of actual and predicted events that absolutely and permanently leaves the realm of simple chance or luck behind. Their adventure is being orchestrated by something beyond even Gandalf the Wizard and Elrond of Rivendell, who are themselves pieces being moved on the board here. Tolkien will openly use the board game or chess match metaphor several times in The Lord of the Rings. Gently, Tolkien is drawing our attention to the fact that there is a higher purpose at work in the events of this story, and we are being prompted to suspect that the moments in this story that look like amazing strokes of luck are not just luck. In my next lecture, At the Roots of the Mountain, I will discuss Bilbo's adventure in the Misty Mountains, including what Tolkien calls the turning point of his career, and Bilbo's legendary riddle contest with Gollum. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.